Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Joe Weisenberger, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, and a well coach, certified health and wellness coach. These credentials indicate the passion Jill has to help us be well, get well, stay well. Jill is an author in her important book, Prediabetes, A Complete Guide, Your Lifestyle Reset to Stop Prediabetes and Other Chronic Illnesses, is our key guide, and we're going to find out more as we meet Jill now. Jill Weisenberger, good morning, and many thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning. I'm so glad to be here. I am really appreciative of you, the work you're doing, and that you are taking this time with us this morning, because this is a really huge area, huge topic, an important one for our health and well-being that we have to discuss this morning, and that's in this whole field, uh, focusing on diabetes, pre-diabetes, and, and what we're going to do about getting some controls over this, right, Jill? Yes, yes. So that is the good news. So the bad news is that it's a huge problem. Very large numbers of people have diabetes and prediabetes, and many, many do not have the diagnosis. And we can talk about that as well as you'd like. But that's the bad news. The good news is is that there is so much that lifestyle can do to prevent it, to reverse it, to manage it. We really are in the driver's seat. And that is a a huge awareness that we have that kind of control. So then it comes, I guess, to the point of saying we need to make that really important positive choice in each of our lives, right? Yes, definitely. So I think it comes first to really understanding what the risk is and if we really are affected, because very, very sadly, the majority of people who have prediabetes have never heard the diagnosis. They may not even be familiar with the term, and prediabetes just means that you are on the path to type 2 diabetes. You have abnormalities. They are at a very uh, still reversible stage for most people, definitely manageable for, for people and reversible for, for most Um, But it it means that you already have the metabolic derangement leading toward type 2 diabetes. But what people really don't know, this is the statistic I like to give. If you can count out nine random people in a shopping mall or a sporting event, just nine random adults, chances are three of them have prediabetes, and very likely none of them even know they have the diagnosis. That's how common it is. And so... Is this something then that we create in our own lives, or are we born with some sort of genetic predisposition? Well, people um, who get type 2 diabetes and prediabetes definitely have to have the genes for that. And it does run along genetic lines. So some people are at greater risk. In this country, um, a lot of our ethnic minority groups are at greater risk. Pacific Islanders, Native Americans, Asian Americans, African Americans, Latinos, Hispanic. These um, tend to be groups that get prediabetes and type 2 diabetes at higher rates. And so there is some genetics to it. Now, I know a lot of people feel very um, distressed 
and maybe guilt. They feel guilt when they're told that they have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes because they think of it as a lifestyle disease. And I prefer not to think of it as a quote-unquote lifestyle disease, but one that has lifestyle solutions. And I think that's a much more empowering position to take because I will tell you there are many, many people with both prediabetes or, or type 2 diabetes who are thin, they eat healthfully, they lead active lives, and they still end up with the problem. And that is their genetics. But there are still lifestyle, lifestyle solutions. So I like to put the focus on the solutions rather than um, anything that would make us feel disempowered. And yes, definitely we want to find a way that we're going to keep this in control. There is the question, though, a pressing question as to why it's become such an epidemic in our country. I do think that it is lifestyle related. But as I said, there are many people who are not overweight and, you know, like I said, lead healthy lives who haven't. But I do think that we're seeing larger numbers because of just the culture that we live in. We live in a culture where food is at every event, so even if we're eating healthfully, healthful foods, if we're overeating, then we're causing health problems. There's too many opportunities to sit in comfy chairs and less opportunities to move our bodies. So you just think about traffic. You think about waiting at the doctor's office. You think about so many jobs are behind computers. So a lot of it is lifestyle-related. And so it's hard to fight against culture. I mean, I've raised two kids in every sporting event, even if it was 30 minutes of just playing on a field, had snacks. I mean, this is our culture. So it's very hard to fight against that. So there we have at least some awareness. It is our culture. And that's why we're together this morning is to look at what we can do in terms of kind of reining this in. I think knowledge is power, of course. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you're going to lead us through some steps here, Jill, that are going to help us to really consider ultimately all of them or find the best ones that work in our life. Yes, yes. So that's actually a really good point, the best ones that work in your life. Because if I have 100 people come through my office with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, they have 100 different lives. They have different emotions. They have different genetics. They have different food preferences, different sleeping schedules. Everything is different. So we really don't like the cookie-cutter approach. So I do understand why people want to be told, just tell me exactly what to do and I'll do it. But the truth is is that they can only do that for a short time because if it doesn't fit their lives, it's not going to work. So they have to find their own path. Um, And there's good news there, too, because there's a lot of healthy ways to, to, you know, diabetes prevention. There's a lot of healthy plates that we can form. There's lots of different styles of eating and types of exercise that we can do. Um, But just in general, when I have somebody come in for the first time or the first couple of times, and we're talking about prediabetes, I like to look at what is their diet? Are they eating health-boosting foods? When we're looking at prediabetes, it's a lot of foods that you might think are taboo are actually 
health boosting. And so I, I know that people like to put the emphasis on carbohydrates or, or sugar in the prediabetes stage because of um, the problem is defined by blood sugar. Prediabetes is defined by blood sugar. So I think people automatically go to that. But the truth of it is at this stage, Putting the emphasis on wholesome foods is so much more important than putting the emphasis on this food has carbohydrates, this food has protein, this food has, um, has fat. So some of the foods that I really like to see are carbohydrate-rich foods. So like oatmeal and barley, both of those have a type of fiber that actually helps the body be less insulin-resistant. So I like to see a lot of that. I like to see a lot of, of legumes and, and lentils and beans, that type of thing, for the same reasons. It actually is good for blood sugar. Um, other foods, things like, like nuts, berries, um, yogurt, these are foods that are associated with less type 2 diabetes. So even though they, you know, we think, oh, fruits, you know, they have sugars in them, we really know that that these are foods that are are um, beneficial to us and coffee and tea those are also foods are beverages that are linked to less uh, type two diabetes so I encourage my patients with prediabetes to use those and then I'll look at exercise and with exercise there's three different things I like to look at um, I like to see people take a walk after a meal or do some sort of cardiovascular exercise every day as if if they're able, certainly most days of the week, but every day if they're, if they're able and physically capable um, because every single time you exercise, you boost your body's insulin sensitivity. So keeping in mind that prediabetes and type 2 diabetes are characterized by insulin resistance, if we can boost insulin sensitivity, then we are doing so much for the body. But it's every single time for two hours up to two or three days that you can boost insulin sensitivity. I want to see people do some strength training because the more muscle you have, there's more place for blood sugar to go. So the more muscle, muscle is like a storage bucket for blood sugar. So let's do some strength training, get some more muscle, and that is where that blood sugar can go. And then also the American Diabetes Association recommends limiting sedentary time. The guideline from the ADA is three minutes of activity every 30 minutes. So if you have a desk job, when the phone rings, stand up and walk around your desk. When you need to get a drink, don't drink out of the water bottle, go to the water fountain. If you need to talk to your um, coworker, don't pick up the phone or email, walk to that person's desk. So there's lots of things that we can do. And just a, a little bit of understanding about that science, the activity is actually what that's a stimulation that the body needs? Yes. So when we're inactive, um, well, when we are, are active, we are stimulating muscles, we are using glucose out of the blood, um, for energy, for activity, it stimulates enzymes. Um, it's like a whole cascade of processes going on, and it's and it's all three of those things that are important. 
So if I, I sometimes have people just start off if they're inactive, I just have them start off with a 10-minute walk after one of their meals, because when they're after eating, blood sugar goes up, but exercise helps blood sugar to come down. So that's one way of getting um, like a double benefit. So you're getting the benefit of it's really more than double, but you're getting the double. Uh, pre-diabetes benefit by lowering your blood sugar right after that meal, plus you're getting that benefit of making your body more insulin sensitive for at least two hours in as much as a couple of days. And then other benefits, cardiovascular and um, burning a few calories. So there's lots of reasons to do it. But that's often what I have people start off with is just take a 10-minute or a 20-minute walk after one of your meals. And this would be a good time to mention that these are all obviously very important, critical aspects of lifestyle. And we have this great book that you've uh, been instrumental in creating for the American Diabetes Association, Jill, The Pre-Diabetes, A Complete Guide. So it's a great resource to uh, use as a companion and, and a reference all along the way, right? Yes, thank you for mentioning. I'm very, very proud of this book, um, Prediabetes, A Complete Guide, as you mentioned, and it is published by the American Diabetes Association. Um, and I think the subtitle really describes the whole book. It's Your Lifestyle Reset to Stop Prediabetes and Other Chronic Illnesses. So it covers um, all areas of lifestyle that I think are critical. So we talk about building a healthy diet, adding specific foods that are good for prediabetes. We talk about all three aspects of exercise. We talk about weight loss. We talk about diet that has nothing to do with weight loss and exercise that has nothing to do with weight loss. So all of those things are covered. Sleep is another thing, another lifestyle factor that affects prediabetes and diabetes because when we are sleep-deprived, we become less insulin sensitive. So even healthy people who don't have prediabetes or diabetes, sleep deprivation damages insulin sensitivity. And the other thing is, is when we're sleep deprived, it's really hard to stay focused on healthy habits. That's when we don't want to exercise. That's when we don't want to worry about a meal. So that's another aspect of it. And then the book also covers emotional eating, restaurant meals, grocery shopping tips, how to change behavior and how to form a habit and how to break a bad habit. So um, I'm really proud of it. So thank you for mentioning that. Well, it is really this wealth of information. And I'm going to kind of cycle back a moment to the sleep aspect, because I certainly fall in that category where perhaps many of us do, that uh, there just doesn't seem to be enough time for sleep. So where am I going to cut corners? It's with sleep. But obviously, that's the very poorest place to do it. Right. So I'm right there with you. Well, I should say I used to be right there with you. When my kids were little, I would easily just give up sleep so I could either get more done or have more fun. And I can remember setting the alarm for, like, what seems now like the middle of the night so I could get in a 30-minute workout and drive my hour and 15-minute commute to get to my job so I could get home early when my kids were home from school. And I thought that the only problem 
was that I was sleepy. I even used to joke, I wish I could could inject caffeine directly into my brain. I mean, I can't believe that these words came out of my mouth. But I used to say that all the time. Oh, I'm so sleepy. I wish I could inject caffeine directly into my brain, thinking that the only problem is that I'm sleepy. But really, it's, it's health damaging. And now we have data to show that sleep deprivation is linked to obesity, type 2 diabetes, prediabetes, and heart disease. And so it's silly to think that we can just skimp on sleep. That is as silly as thinking we can skip on a healthy diet, exercise, and bathing. And, and so this, it may take some adjusting, but here it's a, an opportunity for that lifestyle reset to see how it, it triggers so many critical areas that yeah. maybe if we're struggling with weight, there's a, a great place to start to begin to turn that corner. You're absolutely right, and I do that some, sometimes with some of my um, coaching patients who come in, my coaching clients, is they might think that what they need is a diet overhaul, uh, and maybe their diet needs some tweaking, but the, probably the more critical thing for some of them is to start on the sleep aspect. So we might only work on sleep or only work on sleep and getting a, you know, a 10-minute exercise session in, and then we can focus more on diet. So that's a very good point. Now, in terms of diet, one of the things that uh, we're famous for is, of course, snacking. We have so many ways to snack when we are driving. Uh, it's a way to kind of keep us company because traffic is so bad, or we're sitting in our desk. It's a way to also just almost mindlessly eat. That is an area where we need to focus our attention, that kind of uh, unconscious eating. So that's actually you break my heart when you when you say snack in the car. Um, I think this is really an American, a part of our American culture. I don't know that other countries, people in other countries, are doing that so much. I really stress to people that eating is not something you cram in between two events, but eating is the event. So it crushes my nutritionist soul when people say, oh, I scarfed down such and such while I was running out the door to, the, to my next appointment. It's like, oh, you know, no scarfing, no eating while you're running out the door. Is, you know, make eating the event as much as possible. At least make that an effort as much as possible. But the mindless eating, you know, sometimes I can see this happening in my own, with myself, my family, my circle of, of friends, is people are sitting around a table, one person's not done eating, so somebody else takes seconds and thirds, picks at the pasta bowl or picks at whatever, and continues to eat kind of mindlessly. Or people decide they're done eating when the food is gone as opposed to when they're full or they decide they're done eating when they finished the newspaper or finished a TV show instead of when they were full. So these are habits that are hard, hard to break, uh, and they just require some, first of all, self-awareness, and then setting some intentions, making some, some goals around it. Sometimes I have people look at like a hunger ruler or a hunger scale, like one would be you're starving, and 
10 is you have to unbutton your pants and roll out away from the Thanksgiving table. And you never want to be either of those things. But I'll ask people, like, on that scale of 1 to 10, where are you right now when you start eating? And then when about half your food is gone, ask yourself again, where are you? Maybe you're done. If you pay attention to it, maybe you're done eating. And if you're not and you continue to eat, ask yourself again at the end of the meal. And that helps with that self-awareness and relearning to pay attention to your hunger cues instead of using cues that are external, like when the food is gone or when the TV show is over. Exactly. And and you had used the word, we have this habit. So if it is a habit, it's something we created so we can create new habits. We can. So sometimes we want to do replacement habits. Sometimes we want to just form new habits. To me, the easiest way of forming a new habit is to tag it on to an existing routine. And the example I like to use because it was it's silly, but it was very significant in my life, is that I would every year, every spring, I would buy plants for my front porch, and by midsummer they're dead because I neglected to water them. Well, one day it just occurred to me, I put milk, car- milk bottles out for the milk delivery person. So I, I going out there anyway a couple of times a week. So when I go out there to put the milk bottle out, I fill it up with water, and I water my plants. It's been years now, and I haven't had a dead plant. So when we sit down and you think, well, how can I use that as another way of forming a good habit, that piggybacking onto an existing routine? There's so many ways. So the person who's trying to get into a, a walking habit That person eats breakfast and drinks a cup of coffee every day. As soon as that coffee cup goes into the dishwasher, you know that's when you lace up your shoes and take your walk, something like that. Or you trying to get into the habit of packing your lunch, well, as soon as you put those dirty dinner dishes in the dishwasher, you pack your lunch. It just has to be a conscious decision, and um, it takes effort at first, and then it's your habit. Right. And we know that uh, it takes a little while. Isn't it 21 days creates a new habit? Yeah, I've heard that a lot. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) But when researchers actually studied how long it takes a habit, it was quite variable and it was up to a, a couple hundred days. So some of them was actually less. I think it was 17 or 18 days to 200 and some days. And the researchers said that it, based um, on the complexity of the habit in the individual person. So keep going for that 21 (laughs) days, but just realize you might have to go a little longer. Right. But maybe by that point, it's going to be a little more uh, something that we look at doing regularly that it's well on its way. Absolutely. So in this great book, Pre-Diabetes, A Complete Guide, there is a mention and a suggestion to use journaling, too, as a good technique. So, yes, a lot of people really enjoy journaling, and they journal for other areas of their lives. And so they can take that and use it in terms of their 
prediabetes lifestyle reset as well. Or even if you've never journaled, you can, um, you know, definitely benefit from certain aspects. So first I would ask, you know, what is it that you're interested in, um, in working on? And so for emotional eating, journaling is very, very helpful, and people are, become very successful if they can stick with that. So I might have them keep uh, count of what their trigger was for the emotional eating and how they dealt with it. They might even just snap pictures of their food so they can keep track. So some people who don't want to do a notebook or an app journal can just snap pictures and keep track of their food. They can begin by labeling their emotions. So sometimes people recognize that they are engaging in emotional eating, and they'll write that down in their journal. But I also want them to try to label what the emotion is. Because, you know, negative emotions, it's not bad to have a negative emotion. That's just a normal thing. We all have it. We probably have it multiple times a day. Uh, but when they get out of control, I want people to know, well, am I embarrassed? I don't want to hear I'm upset or I feel bad. Am I embarrassed? Am I scared? Am I angry? Am I sad? And by labeling the, a note, that emotion, and if you're journaling it to write about it, I think that it really helps people to, to learn about themselves, give them enough self-awareness that they can intervene after they've done this enough, they can intervene um, and stop themselves from that emotional eating. So there's that piece of that self-awareness is so critical, ultimately beneficial in this mm-hmm. whole lifestyle reset. Yes, yes. That self-awareness is important. That's hard for a lot of people. And honestly, I think it's a predictor of success. So it might be hard to be self-aware, but the more you practice it, it becomes habitual, just like we were talking about, forming habits. And what you gain from that, what I find is that people who become more self-aware are the ones who are more successful long-term. That's what matters. I always tell people, I don't care what you do for a week. I care what you can do for the rest of your life. Or if they're trying to lose weight, you know, it's like, I don't care how fast you lose this weight. I care that you don't gain it back. So I want to look at the long term. And that long term, because we're living longer, we want to live it healthfully, not be burdened with so many health crises, because that's certainly no fun to long life. Well, that is true. Uh, people often ask me, what's my motivation for taking care of myself? Because I'm a habitual exerciser. I eat my vegetables multiple times a day. You know, I, I, I definitely lead a healthy lifestyle. People ask me, what's my motivation? I said, all that money I'm putting in my IRA, I'm going to be doing fun things. I'm not going to be sitting in a lazy boy, and I'm not going to be paying extra medical bills with that money. I plan on living a full, happy, exciting life. See, that's the great motivator. Mm-hmm. Right. That's another aspect of a lifestyle reset is to really sit back and ask yourself, what are you motivated by? So a lot of times people will say, oh, I just want to lose weight. Well, why do you want to lose weight? Because everything will be better if I lose weight. And it's like, well, you know, let's, let's take a step back and 
and what what is going to be better? So I want to hear it in their own words. And um, there's an exercise in the book, in Prediabetes, a complete guide called the Wellness Vision. And I, I ask you to go through certain questions like, what are you not worried about when you are at your level of wellness and health that you're aiming for? What are you not worried about? What are you doing that you're not doing now? What are you thinking and experiencing? And so people have really interesting things. So people say, well, I won't be afraid to go to the doctor anymore because I'll be excited to see my labs instead of terrified to see my labs. And people say, well, I'm going to be able to take my grandkids to Bush Gardens or to Epcot or whatever. And when they break it down into the specifics of what they're working toward, not I'm going to lose weight. But when they really look at what that benefit is, it's much more motivating, and that motivation is sustainable. Exactly. So much that makes so much sense. It's common sense, basically, and we owe it to ourselves. It's our gift to ourselves. But really, this morning, Jill, you've been the gift to us to bring our attention to this new book, Prediabetes, A Complete Guide, and it's about lifestyle reset. That's that important bottom line. I'm so grateful to you for having written this book and made it so much clearer for us, but certainly not the very least spending this time with us this morning to really bring this awareness to our attention. Well, I thank you so much for letting me chat your ear off and help me to spread the word that prediabetes really is a problem. It, prediabetes is not pre-problem. It is a sign that the problem is going on now. Words of wisdom, and again, many thanks for making us... Thank you us, as well. <laughs> you're so welcome. And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Jill Weisenberger and Sunday Morning Magazine with Dr. Dirk Van Leenen. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Click on the On Air tab, then Sunday mornings, and there you'll find the show with the guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of awareness about the world around us, about the world within us. Have a week of the same and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9, the station to pick you up and make you feel good. Good morning.